And we'd like to ask you to ask questions regarding your meditation practice, if possible, that those questions can come first. Or anything about what's been said already here, if anything's unclear. Any questions? Yes? The lady in the bank with the blue shirt. Uh, this question is for Ananda Bohi. Uh, you said that people who uh, hurt us. Like people who hurt us or hurt others are the one hurt most. Uh, would you elaborate on that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, if uh, what I was in, when I said that, I was thinking about situations where um, somebody says something and we're not and, and we feel that they're meaning something unkind towards us. I'm not talking about physical harm. So it's talking about like uh, if somebody is, uh, we get the feeling like, oh, they they just want to put us down or they're just being mean you know sometimes it's the case that that's true and sometimes it isn't sometimes we we just have a, a certain self um disparagement that that makes us think that other people are saying things in a mean way when they're actually not intending anything mean at all so that that's kind of pretty normal i think that goes on often it mis- like with misunderstandings and uh what i was meaning was that even if somebody is saying something with a harmful intention if you if you can if if you or well, if oneself can if you can stay in your own integrity and in your own goodness then that those that harmful intention doesn't have to harm you so then they you know they're caught in a negative mind state in a harmful mind state that's harmful towards themselves and towards others and that kind of drags them down. Because when you see the potential of, of the human mind, when you see the potential of awakening, it's very beautiful. And then we miss that and we get lost under layers and layers of, of ignorance, really, and of, and of aversion, of fear and greed and so on. And so, you know, if you can stay in your own strength and in your own goodness, then even if somebody is saying mean things, there's a kind of... Um, it's a little bit, uh, what comes to my mind is the, when the Buddha was under the Bodhi tree working towards enlightenment and, and, he, and he touched the earth. The earth is my witness. You know, even when the, all the hordes of Mara are, are trying to challenge him, put him down, tell him he's, he's not really enlightened and all this stuff, he touches the earth. So it's kind of like that, where you touch into your own integrity and your own goodness and, and even it might still hurt. You know that this isn't this doesn't belong to me. This belongs to that person's mind. So, uh, you know, I'd say that they, they're harming themselves, you know, through through acting out those negative mind states. Yeah. And sometimes you have to say, no, enough, or, or you know, present the, the other perspective. And sometimes we have to distance ourselves from people. You know, the Buddha definitely said about the importance of being around people who will lift us up. And not always drag us down. So, I hope that's helpful. 
I want to add something. Mm. Sometimes, you know, sometimes also people, well, I can know it also from my own experience, you know, we sometimes say things or, you know, display a certain body language because we ourselves, you know, the energy which is in ourselves at that moment is quite painful maybe, you know, like if we feel upset and then it can just come out through the mouth, you know, because we have this confused thinking that if we let it out through the mouth, we're going to feel better. And then we're going to feel better for a moment. But then afterwards, we feel remorse. So, but through mindfulness, we can get to know that that automatic reaction. And then we develop more capacity to, to uh, hold it, you know, not suppressing it, but containing it and waiting until it ends again. Because everything which has a beginning has a middle and has an end, as Ayananda Bodhi said before. So it is also with all different, you know, mind states, anger, desire, jealousy, and so on. Sometimes it can be so painful to hold it that it just comes out. But then if you have that done often <coughs> enough and felt remorse afterwards, you might, you know, might have enough uh, awareness to not repeat it again at a certain point, and then it <coughs> happens again. It's just like a going back and forth, but <coughs> over time we slowly, slowly uh, develop, that would be called wisdom, you know, through personal experience. And then if somebody is doing that to you, you know how it is for yourself. So there is a, you know, we can have sometimes, we can just have compassion with these people, but then we don't allow them to abuse us either, you know. So there's that... Uh, you know, extrapolating from your own experience onto others is called compassion, I think, you know. Yeah, this question's kind of bothered me for a long time because when you're, let's say, if your meditation is your whole life and let's say you're like a quarter into it, let's say, in terms of meditation, how do you know your practice or how does your practice get deeper? How does actual meditation practice get deeper and how do you know it is? I think you, you can measure it in how, how you change in your daily life. You know, if you have more capacity to to uh, be with uh, adverse circumstances in your life and not, you know, reacting blindly out just to relieve yourself from your emotions. That's the most powerful sign that your practice is going in the right direction. It doesn't, you know, it's not like what kind of experiences you necessarily have in the meditation, but how it changes you in interaction, in relationship with others and in relationship to all beings, you know, you meet people and and you and and animals and and the planet itself, you know. If you feel concern, and if you know that you know you are part of a bigger whole, and you are not, uh, it's not all there for you to take and to leave what you like, but that you are interdependent with all that there is and then behaving accordingly. That's what, mm. what I would say. 
Would you? I think another way of, of saying that it would be to the, the, the extent to which one is identifying with what's going on. So, you know, part of the, med- the, the deepening of meditation is, is is seeing through the illusion of of self or of a, as a solid as a solid something. And the more we can experience that as a as an arising and a passing away in the moment, in in any situation, then the the more the more you know the, the deeper the effect of the meditation is as like a sign of the of the practice really bearing fruit does that make sense yeah. so maybe at the back and it's not about definitely not about sitting down and not having no thoughts in the meditation that's not the it's, it can be a Sometimes it can happen, but it's not like the measuring stick, you know, for if the medita- if if practice is good or not good. Yeah, can you speak on um, how to work with the pain of betrayal, and um, kind of how to how to see the emptiness of that mm. when you're on the other end of it? Mm. Yeah, I have to say, personally. I haven't often experienced that, but but the one time I experienced it very deeply was when the other party also felt a deep sense of betrayal. Mm. So uh, so both sides were left with this really strong sense of that the other had betrayed the other, and and I was right and they were right, and um, so you know betrayal is it, it starts with a an assumed agreement or even a, an actual agreement that is not kept to. And sometimes that is explicit and sometimes there can be different understandings of what the agreement is and and one, you know, one understands one thing, the other one understands another thing and then each party feels that the other one's let them down. It can be like that. And it can be a a very blatant betrayal of of, of saying you're going to do one thing and and then completely doing something else. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really about coming back to the feeling, being with the feeling, and that's, that's what I did, being with the feeling of betrayal, the, the anger that arises with it, the sense of, of uh, disappointment, maybe even of, of life, you know, falling apart, all of those things that can, that can come up with the feeling of betrayal. And then coming back to your own integrity. Because in a way we can't... Uh, we can't control how the world is going to be and how people are going to be with us. We can't uh, make somebody else the way we would like them to be. People are as they are. And uh, we all have our various you know, degrees of confusion going on. So what we can do is come back to our own integrity and intention and, and to, to keep that as a refuge and then to use awareness to, to feel through the feelings. But, you know, it, it, there's a certain amount of... There's maybe for a certain amount of time you need to go into the story, and it's wrong, it shouldn't have been... Uh, but at some point you've just got to cut that, because that just feeds, its, feeds on itself. And just simply come back to the, to the broken heart. And that changes, like, everything. So it's like holding that in, in, the, in the awareness, in a compassionate space and letting it be felt and, and heard and known and then knowing that you know 
you're still here and life continues and so you can pick it up again and, and carry on in a different way. Um, my question is about kind of uh, the interface between the suffering we uh, just carry in our individual mind and the uh, the meaning of like random suffering, like the suffering is just of the of being human of the whole world. Um, just how how to respond and how much of how much of our task is to become in touch with and um, transmute the suffering of the world. I think when you are you know starting with your own practice, I think the first the most important thing is to just. Uh, Get in touch with, with your own suffering and and start to understand, you know, that suffering is is not inherent in in existence, but is is a result of attachment. And then, you know, understanding the difference between unsatisfactoriness or You know, or the fact that things are constantly changing and suffering because there's not not one and the same thing, and then seeing you know if we want things to be different from what they are, that suffering is the result of that, and then once you have understood that to a certain extent in your own practice, then we do have more resources so that we can also meet you know, the suffering of others and be able to help in, in some ways. And and I think this is different for everybody and because there is a lot in this world which, which needs you know, our attention. I think we have to just, you know, feel it out to which kind of task we, we feel called to, to help and to invest our energy in. And, and then... Uh, you know, go ahead and, and do that, but at the same time also look after ourselves so we don't burn out. So it's it's like a it's like an art almost, you know, to be able to uh, keep our hearts and our minds open to what is happening, and at the same time not feeling overwhelmed by it. That needs a constant adjustment, really, especially in this in the present time of the environmental. Crisis, which is becoming more and more um, clear to more and more people, it, it's it looks to be a, such a huge um, challenge for us, and we can all only do so much. But it, it definitely starts with allowing ourselves to to feel that feeling of of not knowing how to respond, and then. If we really can open up to that and and be with it, it will become clear. You know what is our part in this, in the whole, because we are part of this uh, planet Earth, just a small part, and 
we can tap into this bigger intelligence if we allow ourselves to be really um, impacted by by what is happening in the present moment. And that can be scary sometimes. And and a good practice can give us the grounding and um, can give us the confidence that, that we have what it takes, you know, to, to be open to what is happening. And then it will become clear what is the next step, what can I do as, as a little person here in order to benefit the whole. Because, you know, you're not alone in this. We all just have to do our little thing according to what we can do. So I, you have somewhat um, answered my question already, but I think I'll ask it just in case you have anything else you'd like to say. Um, so I've heard you talk about coming back to integrity and coming back to the practice. And for myself, I know there's part of me that just doesn't, just wants to sabotage, just wants to destroy, just feels so overwhelmed, just wants to do something negative. And so I was wondering if you could say anything about that. And it's great that you can see that, isn't it? Because most people are unaware of it. So it just this is wisdom, you know, that you know that this is also part of of being a human being. This is just uh, you know being able to hold that in clarity and not not shutting down. This is amazing, you know. Just be with it and and see, you know, what where it takes you because this makes you, you know, you have more capacity to be with your own experience because you can hold that and then also you will understand if other people display that. So that wisdom and compassion arising, you know, through being able to hold steady with your experience and then, of course, not acting that out, you know. And and if you, if you stay with this long enough, it's going to change, you know. It's not going to be forever like this. And then something else will come. You know, and also to see what is underneath this, uh, you know, that you feel you want to just destroy, because it probably has something to do, you know, not not being confident that you actually know the right response. So this is an overlay, you know, and one, once you can look underneath it, and you be with this feeling of not knowing what to do, then you know that will also give way at one. Then there will be the strength underneath to then have an appropriate response. But you can't kind of, you know, you can't force it or so. It feels, you know, it's always like the healing is inside of the of the so-called negative emotion. The healing is inside of it. But most people don't have the strength, you know, to stay long enough so that they can get to that, which is inside. They drink something, they eat something, they smoke something, whatever, you know, just to not be with that. But inside is, is, is the medicine, you know. Because all of those negative emotions, they have a wisdom inside of them. It is just like, a, you know, because of our early conditioning, a, 
like a thwarted response, you know, because this is what we thought was the, we would be laughed, you know, if we would do this or we would do that. And so we, we have, we have uh, cut ourselves off from ourselves in order to be accepted. And now through the practice, you know, we can get to that innate wisdom again if we have enough capacity to be with that pain, you know, of the negative emotion. For example, wanting to destroy something, you know. It's a good thing to be with that. As long as you don't act it out, it's really very good. I find it very difficult to simply observe and be aware of my feelings or what I'm seeing. Any suggestions? I tend to verbalize everything and even theorize it uh, when I would like to simply notice, observe, and be aware. Any thoughts? I think uh, you need to also bring in the thinking and the feelings into that. So it's, lo- it's lovely if you can just go outside and be with the scent of the trees and the falling leaves and the warmth of the sun. It's this lovely experience. But if your mind is very prolific and, and, and that's the kind of mind you have, then bring that in to the, to the, to the, to the awareness so you're, you can embrace that. It's like the awareness itself is bigger than anything that we can call me or mine. It's bigger than the thoughts, the feelings, the body. It's, it's, it's broader than all of that. So it's like let your awareness expand to embrace this very prolific mind and know that you can, you can, you, the mind can be doing that in awareness. And it's not that you have to stop it and have a different kind of mind. I, I've spent years I spent years in the past wishing I had a different kind of mind that did a bit more of what yours does. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it, you know, we have what we have, you know. So, <laughs> so it's about kind of making friends with what you've got and, and having the space to let it be there and do it that way. Because if we're always at, at war with it, then we're creating suffering there in the moment when we could just simply be with this situation that's happening in the mind that's doing that and and there's also there's a choice about even if the mind starts to theorize there's a choice about whether you put your awareness on that or whether you put your awareness onto the soles of the feet on the ground or onto into your onto your belly or something sometimes you have to you know do something physical move but you know, to, to to pull the attention away from what it's most used to falling on but it the awareness doesn't have to land on the most uh, attractive object or the most um, stimulating object. It can, it can, you can train it to go to other places. So you can experiment with that a bit. And then you know, if it doesn't get that amount of at- attention, it will just actually shut up. You know, or, or get a bit less prolific because uh, you know it doesn't get that. It isn't fed anymore by either you know, fascination with it or resistance to it. And then it's just going to calm down. A little bit more time, Mm -hmm. if there is more questions. We called the day on this precious moment. We should really call it this perfect moment, because it's always it's always perfect as it is. If we can meet it in the right way.
There's always a place of me, a way of meeting it, where we can, where we know how to respond, and where the, where the natural wisdom starts to operate. Could you talk a, a little bit about? Um, this sounded like something like directed awareness. There's also choiceless awareness, and you know how. Uh, I mean, sometimes in meditation, my mind just—it's not—it's not dwelling on anything particularly. It's active, and it just sort of floats around. <laughs> and uh, I, could you just comment a little bit on that experience? I mean, usually how we teach is that you know, in the beginning, when you start a session, when you when we sit down. Which we focus on the body breathing in and breathing out. And that's an example of focused awareness, awareness with an object, you know, which we use in order to um, come into the present moment. And then, you know, once we, we, have, we are settled enough, we haven't been speaking about that today, then another way of how we are teaching is listening to the silence or listening to the space, which means then, you know, instead of being focused onto, onto one object and excluding everything else, we would then, if we open the mind to listening to the silence or space in the room, then we open the mind wide, wide as wide as the sky, you can say. And then whatever floats through it, you know, like a cloud, thoughts, feelings, smells, tastes, touches, whatever, can be known for what it is and just let it go. This is a different way. This is maybe what you are speaking about. And, you know, both uh, approaches are leading to the same end, basically, which is, you know, to understand the mind, to look through the mind and to let go of identification with what is arising. And depending you know, on, on what is suitable in, in, in the moment, that is what, what's being used. So, does that answer your question? Yeah. And there's many different ways, you know, how it's called according to different schools and lineages and, mm-hmm. yeah. But actually, in the, in the end of the day, it's either, you know, uh, focusing on one point and excluding everything else, or completely opening up and including everything. And then, you know, when we are focusing on the one point, the mind has a tendency to rush off into the past and to the future, to go away from the object, and then we bring it back, mm-hmm. excluding again everything until we get dragged into some very attractive thought thing again, or fearful or so, and come back again when we notice it. And with the other form of meditation where we are open like this, and then suddenly a very interesting thought comes through and then we contract around it. Then we notice it and we come back to listening. And then a very frightful thought comes and then we hold on and what can we do? And then you notice it and you open up again. So that's the two ways, you know, but it's it's going towards the same end, so to say, you know which is to understand how the mind works, 
to really understand it and look through it and then identification with these workings of the mind will loosen its, its hold on us. And then, you know, we can, the mind can do all kinds of crazy things, but we, we, can, we can be with it without having to become it. Yeah. And it sounds pretty simple, but I know it's not simple. It takes a lot of um, courage, you know. And it takes a lot of, we have to put hours into it, like when we learn an instrument or we learn to drive a car, you know, it's not just going to happen because you want it to happen. You have to train the mind. But it's not forcing the mind to be different, but you know, giving the mind the opportunity to get to know itself and then the falling away and the clearing out is the natural result of seeing clearly, you know. It's not that you have to do it. You just, you know, you just um, make the opportunity for the mind to see what it's doing and then it's going to by itself um, change because it's an inbuilt uh, momentum of the mind that it goes towards, you know, healing and and readjustment if we allow it and if we don't distract ourselves from what's happening. Hmm. So when you say understand the mind, that just comes from being present for whatever comes through the mind, either one of these two ways, either focusing on a breath or an object, or being in awareness and watching it happen without or until, as you said, something is so powerful to you that you grab it. Mm -hmm. Um, So are you saying by understand that it's just, uh, as you say, naturally that if you are present for whatever happens, yeah. one one of those two ways, you will be understanding the mind. Yeah, if I mean it depends. You know, everybody has different uh, disposition. So it's you know it's it. This is the 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 basic layout of the process. Is like that, and then everybody has their individual, you know, kind of frills to it, so to say. But yeah, this is how it basically works, and you know, and understanding and and seeing through the process. This is uh, the prerequisite for wisdom and compassion to arise, which is, you know, simply speaking, non-identification with what's happening in the mind, not taking it personal. I'm sorry. So there's the quality of Dhamma Vijay, like investigating what's going on, investigation of states. So that isn't um, theorizing and so on, but that's more like being, you know, really fully being with what's happening and seeing the arising and passing away of what's going on. So that's it's about putting the mind, being attentive in, the, in, a, in an investigative way, so with a sense of curiosity and interest. So that when you say see through the mind, that uh, seeing through it to something underneath or not identifying with it, is it both or one or the other? I think 
first you to, to see how it works and then the non-identification would be a result of that seeing clearly. Because you can't, mm. you cannot do non-identification. Non-identification is, is, a, is a result of having seen clearly. For a simple example, you know, you go to a, a show with a magician and he's doing all kinds of wonderful tricks. But once you have been seeing behind the curtain and you saw all of the props, you never believe again, you know, that this magician can have done all of those things because you see behind the curtain there's two people and all kinds of strings and things, you know, helping to have this appearance, you know, looking through appearances and seeing what's really happening. And once you have seen that for one time, then that magician can come up with the most amazing things. You don't, you don't believe it anymore. So who is the magician? The mind. You know, or, or the, the, the kind of confusion and the ignorance in the mind is making us see things differently from what they truly are. They appear to be a certain way, but once we have really understood them, we see they are not separate things, but they are part of a process. They are not like yourself and this bell and this piece of wood here. You know, they, to our sense organs, they all look like separate entities. But in reality, they are all interdependent. So like when we strike the bell... Then do something together. <laughs> the bell and that thing. And the ears. And your ear. It all starts with simply sitting down and, and just, you know, being in the present moment. And then this, this kind of insights, they, they start to dawn on us, you know, o- over time with the practice, like when we learn to drive a car or play an instrument. We have to just be where we are right now and then just keep on going with, with the simple instructions and the insights, they come to us when it's the time. One can't force it. One can just keep on going and that's all we, we can do. So understanding the mind is being in the present. Those two are the same, in a way. No, the understanding of the mind is a result of being in the present moment, yes. Okay. So that's how it starts, you know, and then this under, the understanding is, is the result of, of doing the practice. And then this understanding, you know, will slowly but surely lighten up the identification, so not to grasp for understanding, but just to be in the present in that. Exactly. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And also, un- you know, it's understandable that we wanna understand, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, we wouldn't even start to practice. But just holding it lightly, you know. If I wouldn't wanna understand, I would have never kind of shaved my head and take those robes and do all of those things. Of course, I want something, but I'm not gonna do it like this, you know. I want, I want to be enlightened, of course. I, I, I don't pretend I don't want to, but I, I have seen enough that pushing for it doesn't help, you know. It just gets you all into a 
not. Thank you. Thank you. I hope I can ask this skillfully and um, clearly. I'm thinking about the enlightened monks and nuns that you talked about. You read the poems, and they had these, these, these um, s- simple little things that happen in life to everybody, like breaking a pot and, and then becoming en- enlightened and walking through that door. Now, I see monks and nuns as... Um, you know, being so wholesome, and you're dedicating your lives to uh, for the benefit of all of all beings. That in that that moment that that enlightenment happens, the, the the person who becomes enlightened is that person. Do you think if that person was was that it happened amongst your company? Somebody dropped the pot and became enlightened. Would that person be different in any way? Um, you're all dedicating your lives to to benefit beings everywhere. Does that door open and 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 the person not go back? It just stays open right. and it's a different place. Okay, thank you. So, um, I mean, there can be moments of insight where where you see clearly, and then the old karma starts to you know cover the mind again, and we get lost in our old ways again so but we remember that there's been that we, we remember that we've seen things in a different way so that's that's part of the the practice we get these glimpses of enlightenment you could say or of clarity and um what i was when i was referring to the, the enlightened monks and nuns i was speaking really about fully enlightened so that they've so the the uh, illusion of of separate individual self is just completely broken apart so i love that image of the of the of the pot falling and smashing because it's just like you know you're going there and you've got to get the water and you've got a whole story about why you need the water and then the pot breaks and there's and there's just this release back to you know just goes back to where it came from basically you know in those days the pots would have just been clay from the earth and then that all just goes back to where it came from so um, it's like a giving back. It's like a letting go of all of these things that we think of as me and mine that we hold so tightly to and, and identify with and suffer because of. And it's just like where the mind is no longer, and we can't make it happen. As I said to you, we can't. We can't make it happen. Otherwise, we'd all be enlightened, you know. It, but it's with um, through investigation and through bringing awareness to moment by moment experience, then. It's like we set up the conditions for that to happen, and you know the needs, the, and and also continue, like continuously p- redirecting the mind, so it goes it, it, redirecting the mind from the away from the unwholesome floods that can take it over to the, towards the wholesome. So first of all, we've got to stop acting on the unwholesome. And then we start to, you know, when, notice when it might start to arise and just just not go there and put our attention to a, a more wholesome direction. And then we cultivate what is wholesome. And uh, and it's said that, you know, for, for, the, for those enlightened, for that enlightenment experience, there needs to be a, quite a stream of wholesome mind states. For, for, any of, for any of the awakening processes in the path, it needs, the mind needs to have a, you know, not just like a moment of wholesome mind state, but... That it's that it's going in a wholesome direction for, you know, a period of time, 
but also I just want to make it really clear that monks and nuns, you know, we often the people who are really, you know, pure and, and wholesome and, and uh, disciplined and dedicated don't become monks and nuns because they don't need to. <laughs> it's the kind of <laughs> it's the ones who are a little bit off track and a little bit kind of, you know get up to some unwholesome business without a little help that end up in the robes because we see the potential and then we see like, well, I'm going to be pulled off down the wrong track. So many people in the Sangha, monastic Sangha, in the West, I can't say the same for their, for their Buddhist countries, but in the West, many people are, are in the robes because they see that they need that restraint and that container and that direction in order to, to make the most of this experience. And without that, who knows what would be up to? <laughs> what would have would have been up to? So, that, so it's very easy to project onto us as being like the holy ones, you know. As she's uh, just recently, we were in the uh, Sister Jati and I were in the ladies' bathroom up, up at the by the upper hall, and and this woman came out and she said, "Oh, I didn't. It's so strange to see you here. I just kind of don't think of nuns as going to the bathroom. <laughs> it's like no, we're human beings, you know." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so big, you know, it, it, it's it's like we we hold a certain you know the robe really holds a certain um, archetype. Archetype, thank you. Yeah, holds a certain archetype, which which is which touches the heart because it's kind of in all of us. But don't uh, think it's all it's all here in these robes. It's actually what you what what you see is is in your own heart. So you have to connect with that in yourself. Yeah. Oh, I, th- I think you one. were first, yes. That's the last one. That's the last one, sorry. I wanted to ask a question about listening. First, how, what's your advice for listening to a Dharma talk? And what sec- is your what? A Dharma talk. What is, is your advice? The advice mm-hmm. for listening to a Dharma talk. And then also in conversation if it's different. Uh, I think there's there's different ways you know, of listening to a Dharma talk. Either you know you you just sit really very quietly and and let it kind of come in here, you know, through the heart, or come in more through the mind. I think, and I do it differently at different times. And. You know, it's kind of a meditation, really, a, f- a form of meditation where where sometimes it depends also on the speaker, of course. Sometimes we, we get more from just being in the presence of the speaker and the words are not so important and sometimes also the words are important. I think it's, it depends on the situation. And speaking with... You mean speaking in, in conversation... With friends. I just, I just want to add a little yes, bit yeah, about the listen to a Dhamma talk. I also just want to say, as we were saying before, about, you know, we think of ourselves as lots of finite little things here, and but actually the quality of listening also affects the quality of Dhamma that comes through the teacher. Mm-hmm. So it's a very two way thing. So, and, and there are, it is mentioned in the scriptures about, in the suttas about, you know, listening, like when listening to a Dhamma talk, to listen in a way that um, kind of, that's attentive and that's that's interested and present, and that that interest and, and openness to to understand it kind of draws the dharma out. 
or even uh, if somebody's teaching and, and you know you're not very you're not particularly attentive or you're thinking oh it's them again and, or you're, you're distracted by some bodily something that's going on they might be giving the most profound teaching and you miss it because your, your attention isn't attuned so it's, it's very much about attunement and it's kind of a two way process yeah. Yeah. It's, and I think it's not dissimilar to when you have a conversation with somebody to to really kind of stop and, and really pay attention and be there rather than thinking already about the answer for example or you know um or wanting, you know, wanting that person to be finished speaking because you have to do something else. It's, it's just like a, a, a two-way experience, just the same as when you, when you listen to a talk. So, And sometimes it can be very difficult if somebody goes on and on and on, you know, to just to stay and, and be there and just in feeling the whole body is already wanting to run away or, you know, wanting to kind of turn the head and look somewhere else and just... You know, we can make it. Is is a is a can be a practice sometimes. You know, and then also at the same time, you know, knowing when when it's enough and when we maybe have to say, please, you know, I have to do something else. So it just is. You know, it's, it can be a very good uh, opportunity to to get to know yourself. You know how you are in in these situations and. And see, you know, how you would like to be, and then make those adjustments, and and see what effect it has on 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 your relationship. Interesting, you know, taking the time to really fully being there with somebody can be a, you know, can be a very satisfying experience, really. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.